Well, again, I do want to say good morning to you. Want to encourage you now, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2 together. This is the second week of our series about who is Jesus. Last week we started at the resurrection, and now we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to, we're going to examine how did we get to the resurrection in the life of Christ over about the next five or six weeks or so. But this morning we, we want to talk about something that a lot of people are interested in. What's tomorrow going to hold? What, what's the future? You know, as we are ending the, the month of April this week, and getting ready to turn the calendar into May and everything that's coming for summer. You know, the March Madness men's basketball tournament just ended a couple of weeks ago uh, with a team from the Commonwealth happening to take the national championship. Um, and it's funny because every year, millions of people fill out brackets. And they get in school pools, office pools, to see who can make the most correct predictions. Millions of dollars are wagered on this particular tournament that occurs over the course of three weekends. And year after year, people try to pick that perfect bracket. Now, no one's actually accomplished that yet. There have been some who have intensely close, but nobody's picked every single game of that tournament perfectly. Fact of the matter, a Duke math professor decided to try to calculate the odds of picking a perfect bracket. This is what he came back with. Your odds of picking every game of the basketball tournament perfectly are 1 in 2.4 trillion. I think he could have just said, not going to happen. Would have been a whole lot easier to, to think of. It's such a long odd that a company a few years ago said, if you fill out brackets on our website, this is what we'll do. If you pick the perfect bracket, we will give you a million dollars. Now with odds like 2.4 trillion, I think they're pretty comfortable in going, we're never going to have to pay that money out. But why is it that we like these types of things? Two reasons. Number one, we like to be right. But number two, we want to know what's going to happen. We are fascinated by end times and prophecy and all of these things even though we're terrible at actually predicting what's going to happen. And so a lot of times we go, well, it, why does God give us prophecies? As though he's somehow like us. But see, everything God has ever said was going to take place has happened. God gives us prophecies so that we will know him. So that we will understand that he is an all-knowing God, who knows the end from the beginning. And specifically as it relates to the prophecies of the Messiah, the one big thing this morning is this, that prophecies of the coming Messiah were given so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah. God wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know how to know him and how to be saved. And so let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1 and ask if you're able, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Matthew 2, 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, 
Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for the time of worship through music. And now we thank you for the privilege of coming and worshiping through a study of your word. Lord, may the Spirit give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Prophecies of the Messiah are given so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah. God's not playing a hide-and-seek game with us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be able to worship him and live in a relationship that we were created for. And so he gives us prophecies so that we will be able to worship him rightly. And so prophecy reveals two things in this text. The first one is this, that Jesus is the Messiah. Often people wonder, what's the purpose of prophecy? And Jesus answered in John 14, 29. He said, I've told you all these things so that when they happen, you will believe. God wants you to believe in who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf so that we can live in a right relationship with him. Now, what we see in our text are two specific prophecies and one general prophecy. And they're all to confirm the identity of who Christ is. The first one we see is in verses 5 and 6. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet. And so this is a prophecy from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And it is telling where the Messiah was going to be born. Now as we said last week, you may be able to somewhat control the day and the date of your death. Okay, if you make some poor choices... You can pretty much take a guess. You know what? This might happen today. But I've never met the person who arranged the city of their birth and who their parents were going to be. Yet this is precisely what we see in the life of Jesus. It was prophesied that he was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. That he would be born of a virgin in the book of Isaiah. Now the second prophecy we see in this text... We find it in verses 14 and 15. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Now, the, the backstory there is 
Herod is angry that the wise men have tricked him. And so Herod has ordered all males two years and younger to be murdered. And so God comes to Joseph in a dream and says, take the mom and, and take Jesus and go to Egypt. Verse 15 says, and, there it was, and they were there till the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. And now this ought to remind us of another very well-known Old Testament story about another leader who led Israel out of the land of Egypt. Of course, it's Moses. It's the Exodus. It was God delivering a nation out of slavery and taking them to the promised land. Well, what Moses did physically, Jesus is accomplishing spiritually for those who trust him. He calls us out of sin and bondage, and Jesus leads us into his presence. And so we see the purpose of this particular prophecy. But then there's this general one. And it's at the very end of chapter 2, right there in verse 23. It says, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. So Herod has died. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are leaving Egypt. They're coming back. There's a different ruler in in power there. So instead of going back to Bethlehem, they go to Nazareth. And it says, And he came and he dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, for those of you who have studied the Old Testament, and you're kind of racking your brain going, you know, I've read the Old Testament. I've never once read where it said the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Take a deep breath, you're right. There is not one verse in the Old Testament that specifically says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. So why did Matthew include this? Well, notice in verse 5, it says prophet, singular. Verse 15, prophet, singular. In verse 23, it says prophets. So he's talking about multiple people. So what he's getting at is we need to understand the mindset of people in Jesus' day about the city of Nazareth. How many of you ever heard the saying that that person's from the wrong side of the tracks? Okay? That, that what, I mean, what are you saying when you say a person's from the wrong side of the tracks? You don't belong here. You're not important. Okay, well, this is really how people viewed the town of Nazareth in Jesus' day. It was a very small town. It was pretty much ignored all the way through. It was at the lowest end of the socioeconomic scale in Israel. We, we see further proof of this when Jesus is calling his first disciples in the Gospel of John. He finds this man by the name of Philip. And Philip is so excited that they have found the Messiah. He immediately runs and he finds his brother Nathaniel. And this is what Philip says. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, as well as the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Nathaniel is a good Jewish man. He was devout in his faith. So, he should have been really excited, right? I mean, if anybody was going to be excited about the birth of the Messiah, it was going to be Israel. They had been waiting thousands of years for this promised deliverer. The first prophecy of the Messiah comes is Genesis 3.15. So all the way back at creation. And Moses talked about it throughout the, the law. 
They should have been excited. So when Philip comes to Nathanael and says, We have found him of whom Moses spoke of in the law and the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. What's Nathanael's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael completely dismissed and ignored Jesus based on where he was from. This was the view of people around the town of Nazareth. Now, it's not the only time. Fact of the matter, in Jesus' mission, the religious leaders, they're getting together and they're debating, who is Jesus? And one of the religious leaders stands up and goes, search the scriptures and you will see that no prophet comes from Nazareth. And so Jesus was despised, he was rejected, he was ignored. Why? Because of where he was from. Now what we understand is that's where Jesus grew up. That's not where he was born. The scriptures said he was born in Bethlehem. We know he's born in Bethlehem. And the amazing thing is that the very people who should have been the first to go and worship Jesus are the very ones that ignore him and send other people to worship him. Did you notice it was the religious leaders? They said where the Messiah was going to be born. And instead of going with the wise men to worship, they just ignored him. Why? Because Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. We're going to dive into this a little bit more, but I want us to understand what does Scripture actually say about Jesus? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this. God, who at various times and in diverse ways spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of himself, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did the writer of Hebrews just say? Well, he's saying that Jesus is God. He's the express image. So if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. That if you have heard Jesus, you have heard the Father. The writer of Hebrews is saying that he was present and active in creation. And ultimately that he is the one who purged our sins. That is, God himself stepped down into his creation and died for us. It is through him that we are saved. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. This is who Jesus is. If we were to go to John chapter 1, verse 1. And the word, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Now, John's favorite title for Jesus is the word. And so, John is declaring Jesus is God. 14 verses later, John 1, 14. John writes this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we see that Jesus is God. John says he is also man. Now this is really hard for you and I to wrap our minds around. How can somebody be fully God and fully man? In fact, there's only one person in history that's ever done it. Jesus. And it is by him and it is through him that we can be saved. Notice there's nothing in Scripture that says, go work and be saved. Go be a good person and God will let you in. 
There's nothing in there. It's all about what God has done for us. This is what Scripture reveals about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. In Scripture, you'll see the word Messiah. You'll see Christ. You'll see Lord. You'll see Savior. You'll see Deliverer. All of those refer to one person, and that is Jesus. But not only does prophecy reveal that Jesus is the Messiah, but the second thing we see in our text is this, that prophecy reveals the gospel is for everyone. I want you to think for just a second. If you and I got to choose how to announce the birth of Jesus, how would we do it? We'd probably have Fox News and CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC there. It'd be all over social media. We would go to the political elites. We would go to the who's who of the world. We would go to the religious elites, and they would all be on stage and celebrating this, right? Is there any greater proof that we're not God? Because God does the exact opposite, doesn't he? Who does, Jesus, who does God announce the Messiah's birth to? Shepherds. Outcasts. Nobodies. This God reveals the fact that the Messiah, the Savior, that they have been waiting for for a long, long time has been born. And then we go to the resurrection. Who was the first people that God revealed the fact that Jesus rose from the dead to? Women. In those days, women were seen as property. They weren't valued. But God ascribed value to, to the nobodies, and he ascribed value to all of humanity by what he did. And who are, who are the first people, really, that God drew to worship this baby? Well, you got the shepherds, then you got the wise men. Who are the wise men? All scripture says is that they were from the east. They, they were magi. They were astronomers. They were pagans. They were Gentiles. So the very night of Jesus' birth, what we see is that Jesus was born for Jews and for Gentiles. That the gospel is for everybody. And this is truly good news. And it's also good news for this reason. That there's no one here that has sinned so egregiously that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse you thoroughly from all your sin. You have not done anything that is so bad that God cannot and will not forgive you if you will trust in the gospel. But the flip side of this is also true. That there's no one here that is so good that they don't need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse them and forgive them of their sins. This is the gospel that whether it's the first time in church or you grew up in church, the gospel is for you. That it is the gospel and the gospel alone that will save us. What's the gospel? Well, Paul gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The very, the very fact that Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross proves that you and I cannot save ourselves. 
that we all need the gospel because we are all sinners. This, this is the glorious truth of who God is and what he desires for us. And so what, how do we ultimately apply this text? What do we do with it? Well, two things. The first one is this. Know that God pursues us. Romans chapter 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. There's none who understand. It's a quote from Psalms. What, what was Paul getting at? That if God left us to ourselves, not a single one of us would ever pursue Jesus. Not a single one of us would go looking for a Savior. We wouldn't even realize that we were lost. Because He is a holy God, He had every right to leave us to ourselves. You know, so often we, we want to believe the best about us. We believe that there's something lovable or, or redeemable about us. But the fact of the matter is there is nothing lovable or redeemable about any of us. Because given our choice, we would rebel against God every single day. We would do our own thing. We would be like Herod. And we'll come to him. But because of his grace, because of his love for us, God sent his son to die in our place. That even though we wouldn't come looking for him, he came searching for us. He came to redeem us from our sins. Fact of the matter, I would argue the very fact that you are here this morning a is not a coincidence. B is proof of God's love and grace for you. See, not only would God have been justified in just leaving us to our own selves and go, you got yourself into this mess, sorry. But God, if he really wanted to, nothing said he had to write his word down for us, does it? The very proof of God's love and grace to us is the fact that he has perfectly preserved his word for us. That every time I open scripture, I can know I'm reading the mind, the heart, and the will of God. This is proof that God wants you to know him. And how to love him and be in a relationship with him. <coughs> this is who God is. And the very fact that we can come and hear about who we are and who Jesus is. Is evidence that God loves you and he desires a relationship with you. He's given us his son and he's given us his word. And they both show that God is pursuing you. He died for you to have a relationship with you that was impossible apart from his death, burial, and resurrection. Which leads right into the last point of application and it is this. That God will make a way for those who will trust the gospel. There's a great debate happening in Christianity right now. And the debate is, is this. What about those who have never heard the gospel? What will happen to them in, for all of eternity for those who have never heard the gospel? We don't have time to go down this, this lengthy trail. 
but I want to say two things about it. Number one, I think we're asking the wrong question. And number two, I think we have too small of a view of God. We're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, what about those who have never heard? The question is, Lord, how do you want to use me to go and tell them? This is, this is the question. See, when you and I were saved by God's grace, we relinquished all rights to our life. We, we are no longer calling the shots. God is in the driver's seat. We are in the back seat. He's the one driving the car, not us. And so it should be, Lord, what do you want to, how do you want to use me to glorify you by reaching them? That's the question we got to ask. But so often we just have such a low view of God. You know, we, we casually read the Christmas story. And it is my contention that we need to rescue or, or redeem the Christmas story from society. We, we have allowed society to just completely pervert the truth of what Scripture says. We see these wise men, and there's a star. And we just casually talk about the star. You know, oh, yep, star appeared, and it led the wise men to, to where Jesus was. What does it actually say? Well, it actually says this. First, that the star appeared. So most likely the night that Jesus was born, the star appeared. They happened to see, I mean, really? Or, or do you really want to sit there and tell me that these pagan astronomers just happened to look up into the sky in the right direction and at the right moment saw this star and said, oh, that's the star of the king of the Jews. We need to go worship him. That's, that's a big, big leap. But notice, they went to Jerusalem. Why did they go to Jerusalem? That was the capital of Israel. Where are kings going to be born? The capital. But no, no, no. God's not done with them. Okay? So they hear, Bethlehem is where? And the king says, go to Bethlehem. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, guess what appears a second time? That same star. And it leads them to where Jesus was these pagan astronomers who made a living worshiping the creation were being led supernaturally by a sovereign God to worship the creator. Now, do you really think all of that happened by chance? I'm sorry. I'm not willing to go out on that limb. But I am willing to sit here and go, there is an all-loving, powerful, sovereign God who loves us enough that he will call us out of our sin and bring us to the Savior. And that's what he did with the wise men. And that's what he does with you and me. Everything that's happening in your life right now is God in his love drawing you to himself. There's no such thing as a coincidence. There's only evidence of God's love and grace. Now, I'm not discounting your pain or your suffering. We live in a fallen world where a lot of bad things happen. But God is bigger and more powerful than those bad things. 
he can take those bad things and use them to draw you into a relationship with him if you're not saved or to teach you to be more dependent on him if you are saved. Just like God used the star to lead the wise men to the Savior, he is using the circumstances in your life to lead you to Jesus. God will make a way for those who will trust the gospel. We encountered three people, three groups in this text. King Herod, the religious leaders, and the wise men. Three groups, two reactions. And those three groups and two reactions summarize every one of us in this place today. There's some of you here this morning who are like King Herod. Well, what's that mean? I'm not a king. I don't have a throne. Sure you do. It's called your life. See, King Herod, he had been appointed by Caesar. And he was made king of this this province of Judea. And so guess what name Herod took on for himself? King of the Jews. This is why in verse 3 it says, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. The supposed king had heard that the true king had been born, which means, uh uh-oh, I got problems. He was going to be found out to be a fraud. And so Herod began the opposition to Jesus because in Herod's opinion, Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. And some of you are Herod. You are the king of your own life. You're sitting on the throne. You're calling the shots. You're making decisions and using the blessings God give you for your own selfish happiness. It's all about you. That's King Herod in this text. The problem is you're not a real king. Jesus is. And one day the king is going to be honest, is going to remind you, I'm on the throne, not you. The question is, will you willingly, because of love and grace of God, take yourself off your throne and allow God his rightful spot? which is the throne of your heart and your life. Or is life just going to keep being about you? Then there are the religious leaders. We're, we're going to liken them to people who go to church. They know the right things. They just don't care. They, they, they are rejecting Jesus. Why? Because they're ignoring him. Again, they knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They should have been the first ones to get there and to worship the Messiah. What do they do? They ignored him. Why? Because he wasn't the Messiah they thought. Jesus would say to his disciples in his ministry in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I command you to do? His disciples were ignoring his lordship over their life. 
and some of you may be as well. You claim to be Christian, but you're not living a life of obedience to Scripture. Not perfect obedience, it's never going to happen. But there should be a desire to be obedient. There should be fruit to our profession. Okay, If I say I'm a Christian, you ought to be able to see it by the life I live, not the title or the words that come out of my mouth. To say that Jesus is Lord, but then to not obey the commands of Scripture is to lie and to reject Him. And then there's the third group. There's the wise man. And here's the beautiful gospel illustration of the wise man. They were from afar. They were far separated from God, alienated from God. They weren't even looking for God. They were trusting the stars. And those who were once far away, living in darkness, have seen the light. And they were led by the light to Jesus. Did they have all the Bible figured out? No. They know everything about Christianity. Christianity wasn't even really existent yet. What do they do? They saw God and they obeyed. The star led them who were living in darkness, who were living in sin to light and the salvation of the world. Only the wise men worshipped and accepted Jesus. Is that your story? Because we were once alienated from God without hope. Yet because of his love and his grace, Jesus died in our place. And God called us out of our sin. Convicting us of our sin, but also pointing us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And by grace, we surrendered our heart and our life to him. That's the story of the wise man. Is that your story? Who are you? Are you rejecting Jesus because you want to be the one calling the shots? Have you been saved but you're you're ignoring him? Or are you coming closer to him day by day and pointing others to him? How do you need to respond this morning? However it is, let's worship together. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray? Father God, as we just continue to move along in worship, Father, there's so many things that we can learn from your birth. How we were once alienated, living in sin, far from you, but because of your love and your grace, you drew us to yourself. And Father, maybe there are those here this morning who have never come to you. They've never trusted in your grace. They're trying to do good works. They're trying to be a good person or maybe they're just flat rejecting you. Father, the great news is that you will still save them. You didn't die for the quote unquote righteous. There were none righteous. 
You died for us while we were sinners. While we were still being King Herod, calling the shots of our own life. You laid down your life for us. So, Father, if there are those here this morning that need to trust in you, God, I pray today would be that day. Father, my, my concern for others is they profess to be saved, but their life isn't a reflection of who you are. And Father, I pray that it, they would not hear it as condemnation or judgment, for we are all sinners who fall woefully short of your glory, but rather that they would hear it as a compassionate call from you to lay down the sin in their life, to just acknowledge that they haven't been obedient, to seek your help. Because, Father, we have the promise that you will. Lord, let us be like these wise men, to respond to what we have seen, to worship, to adore you. As we sing this song, Father, help us just to respond to you In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing uh, another song. It's page 330 in your hymnal. Very familiar one. Amazing grace. If you need to pray, if you want me to pray with you, let's just respond and worship together.